Welcome back to episode 21 of The New Normal. My name is Sal. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a great guest for this episode, Mr. Justin Gatlin. He is senior pastor over at Alvin Missionary Baptist Church. We talk about the historical implications and Christian interactions during the coronavirus. Justin is married to his high school sweetheart, Colleen, and a dad of two funny, loving, and smart little toddlers, Anastasia and Samuel. We hope you enjoy this episode. We got into some deep philosophical and historical conversations. We are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits, you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. Welcome to the new normal, where we're talking current events, finances, philosophy, preparedness, and more. My name is Sal, and with me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Each week we dive into those various topics and bring you an inspiring person or message to navigate the world with a positive mindset in this new normal. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Now, here we go. Welcome back to the new normal. My name is Sal. With me as always is my good friend, Quentin. Say hi to everybody, Quentin. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. We've got an amazing guest for you guys this afternoon, Mr. Justin Gatlin. He is married to his high school sweetheart, has two loving children, Anastasia and Samuel. He's also the senior pastor at Alvin Missionary Baptist Church in Alvin, Texas, and the adjunct facility for Texas Baptist Institute and Seminary. He received his BS in mathematics from the University of Houston, Clear Lake, and has a Master of Arts in Theological Studies from Liberty University. He loves black coffee, the beach, and the Houston Astros. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you guys. Really been enjoying the podcast. Thank you so much. You uh, recently listened to the fatherlessness episode. Tell us what you thought about that. No, I thought it was absolutely powerful. I, I really love how you guys are not ashamed or nervous about dealing with the tough issues that are really the important issues. And I think that fatherlessness was a great example of something that's really formative in society, even if it's a hot potato. I think if anybody hasn't listened to that one, uh, definitely go back and listen. Very, very powerful. We appreciate that feedback. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely a huge topic when we're talking about you know, our earthly father and, and the, the communication and the lack of um, just having fathers in our lives, whether they're physically there, but emotionally not present. Um, I think it also goes back to a connection with our heavenly father. And I think you can speak a lot about that. Can you give us some background as to your, your theological upbringing and, and how you got into becoming a pastor? What was your path that led you into that? Sure. Yeah. So I um, grew up actually in the church that I'm the senior pastor of now. Uh, I've left and come back. Uh, I, I grew up here as a kid, went through a uh, skeptical phase, which I guess a lot of scientifically minded uh, kids do uh, in my mid-teens and worked through that uh, 
really shaped by some of the writings of guys like William Lane Craig and uh, some of those uh, really slick philosophers, Edward Fesser um, and some others. And uh, came to faith, I was going to go to uh, school for political science. That was my dream, uh, was to get a poli-sci degree from Trinity uh, in San Antonio. I only applied to one school because I knew where I wanted to go. They had the internship program with CIA that I wanted, and I wanted to do that. Um, but as I was 15, 16, I guess, I felt an uh, overwhelming call of God that that was not what I was supposed to do with my life. Um, and so I decided that I needed to go to seminary and get some training. Uh, my pastor at the time encouraged me to get a secular degree where I would be able to support myself if I needed to uh, outside of the church. And so I was uh, math. The math subsection was my lowest score on the SAT. I got a 680 on math, but I still, I figured it'd be a challenge. It would be something that I could handle well enough. <laughs> um, so I got my undergrad in math and did my master's in theology. I was a youth pastor for a uh, three-year period down in Richwood, where we worked a lot with uh, underprivileged kids in Freeport. Richwood's just outside Lake Jackson. It all kind of blends together down there. And so I really got a, a touch of reality, uh, running a bus ministry, picking up low-income kids with uh, lack of family support. Uh, eventually, I became the senior pastor there for a couple or three years, and I was the police chaplain. Uh, for the Richwood Police Department, um, where I did my training through the International Conference of Police Chaplains. Um, really loved that. Uh, I was able to be very active there. We had a fantastic chief who let me be really a part of the department. You know, I, I rode around about 12 hours a week with them and stuff. Um, and so then when I came back to become the senior pastor at Alvin Missionary Baptist Church, where I am now, um, I have had a lot of background in that kind of community involvement and stuff that's really shaped me and really helped me to do what I need to do. I've been here for a couple of years. What were some of the experiences that you had being the chaplain and, and what did that kind of open up your eyes to in, in low income areas? What did, what did that shape your, your reality? You know, did you have some preconceived notions of what it might be like and, and how did that transform your, your perception in those areas? Yeah, sure. So to be frank, um, growing up upper middle class, uh, I had a really arrogant attitude about people in poverty. <laughs> and I didn't understand the kind of generational cycles that take place. When I saw kids who were eight, nine years old, that ducked when the van drove past a police car. Um, when I heard kids say, you know, they tased my dad, but that's just because they know my family, the police are out to get us. And I saw that baked into young kids from a young age. They really set them up for failure in some tremendous ways. Uh, you know, I talked to one uh, lady that we were able to lead to faith when she was in her mid-20s. And she talked to me about how when she'd been in her early teens, when she was in juvie, she would intentionally do things to stay in juvie to get sent back. So she would have a place to eat, a uh, place to sleep, food to eat, things like that. And so it really shaped my mind in that way about the kind of deep struggles that are shaped into people's lives. And of course, the, everybody that has ever been in the process of death notifications knows the first time you go to parents and tell them that their teenager has uh, committed suicide and the, the different ways people react to that and the resources that some people have where, you know, their family's there immediately and they've got support and they can cope even in the midst of their grief. 
and then the kind of people that you have to take their keys from them so they don't follow the sheriff car, you know, to to the morgue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it gave me some insight into the importance of the resources that I took for granted and didn't even realize that I had, uh, as well as trying to figure out ways to help other people to, to get those. I just recently wrapped up listening to a podcast um, on Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. He had a social psychologist, Dr. Jennifer uh, Ebert Hart, I believe that's how you pronounce it. And she had some really fascinating stories just about the awareness that young children have, especially in in that poverty mindset, uh, low income. One of the stories that she had was her five-year-old son was on an airplane and was looking around and and looked back at his mother and said, look, that that guy looks like daddy. And she's looking around and she says, well, he looks nothing like daddy. And upon further assessing that situation, she noticed he was the only black man on the flight and also noticed that even though he had dreadlocks and her husband was bald, her son had already picked up these kind of underlying racial tones that were, you know, already fomenting in, in his psychology. And one of the things that she asked her son was, why do you, why do you think you've associated this man looking like daddy? And he goes, well, you know, he, he's the same skin color as daddy. Well, why do you, you know, she kind of broke it down and started asking those questions. And, and later on in life, she, she also gave an example of the fact that they were racing around in a car and it was an Uber driver and the Uber driver was just ducking and weaving and and racing and and just was not a safe driver at all. And her son told her about the experience and told her he was actually more afraid of getting pulled over and what would happen with the police interaction than he was with the actual Uber driver who was being completely irresponsible in how he was driving. Did Did you come across any kind of biases working in these areas where you, you had to overcome some of these hurdles and, and did your theological background help maybe bridge some of those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the kind of scenarios you're talking about are really common. And the problem is just like, I didn't recognize my biases against people in those situations. It's really hard to deal with something that you don't even realize is there. And so when you have the hard fake uh, attitudes that have been taught to you through your life from the very beginning, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dramatic shift. So for me, the, the, the theology of a new birth, uh, about the idea of becoming a new creature, uh, not born of flesh, but born of spirit, you know, the idea that you can have a fresh start, that the kind of things that you've been through don't define you was really powerful in, in trying to work with people and trying to explain to them that your earthly family, your earthly father, you know, go back to what we'd already talked about, doesn't necessarily define who you will be because your heavenly father uh, has got a better plan for you and it's got better resources for you and it's got a better way of shaping you, that your DNA may make things harder on you, may make things easier on you. you know, there's always that spectrum, but that ultimately there's hope because there's newness. And I think that when people can come to that place mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, where they can realize that there is more to them than they've realized, that, you know, God can do more in them than the box they put themselves in, that the freedom that comes from that and the resources that come from that and the, the hope 
that comes from that can overpower a lot of those negative ruts that their mind gets into. Sure. Uh, and I, I say one more thing about that. You know, I think that the most powerful practical thing that I've ever dealt with is the the reality that you can't think about two things at once. And an analogy that I always give is that when your mind is stuck in a rut, some kind of negative spot, and it, it's like if I told you, don't think about Thanksgiving. Okay? Don't think about turkey. Don't think about stuffing. Don't think about mashed potatoes. Don't think about the weird lines on cranberry sauce, okay? Don't think about kindergartners and culturally insensitive clothing. Don't think about any of that. You know, what do you think about? All of that. All of that, right? But I tell you, <laughs> don't, don't look down. think about it, you're stuck, okay? Now, I want to tell you, think about Christmas. Think about the smell of trees, the sound of wrapping paper, you know, the noise of the jingle bells, the Salvation Army bells. Think about the cool air, if you're, you know, cool-ish air, if you're here in the greater Houston area. <laughs> think about the, the way you felt on the best Christmas you can remember, you know, the feel of being on Santa's lap. And now what are you thinking about? Christmas, right? <laughs> You're not thinking about Thanksgiving. So when I say don't think about Thanksgiving, all you do is dig that rut deeper. So when you have an alcoholic or a drug addict and they say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. They just dig that rut deeper and deeper and deeper. You know? uh, what the Bible says is whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is true, whatever is of good report, think about these things and the God of peace will fill your hearts and minds. And so that principle of positive substitution, like, okay, I'm not going to dwell on these negative interactions that I've had with a certain group of people. I'm not going to dwell about these failures that I've had even. Uh, instead, I'm going to focus on the positive. Uh, to me, that's not like power of positive thinking, hopeful cross your fingers stuff. That's just the reality that you can't think about two things at once. <laughs> and that when you think about the things God designed you to think about, it gets the rest of your life in alignment. So th those are some big takeaways that I've had personally. What were some breakthroughs that maybe you, you've had while you were either a chaplain and, and talking to some of these youth or, or even adults um, or just breakthroughs that you've had as, as a senior pastor that someone is, is stuck in that rut and you're, you're trying to explain to them, you know, the power of not necessarily, again, not going back to the power of positivity, the, the, the secret or anything to, to that respect, but actually reflecting on God's word and, and having that positive uh, vision shape your reality. What are some of the breakthroughs and examples? Maybe someone who was just stuck in a generational curse, really stuck in this generational mindset of, you know, the man's holding me down. I'm never going to amount to anything. Can you, can you give me any examples of that? Yeah, I, I'll think of two, you know, one is maybe more trivial, but I, I think it has got a certain emotional power and the, the other one will be more substantial. So the first one is a little boy that we had and at this point, he was probably nine or 10 years old, and he was, in, he was stuck in that spot. He, he and his brother were going nowhere fast. Uh, and his brother was about 14, maybe, and was already involved in a lot of things that he should not have had any involvement with. Um, later on, we would deal with in our youth group when one of their friends was killed, um, shot in a, a drug deal, and uh, just really, really traumatic. Um, and so this boy had been in this kind of this rut of his thinking and his mindset, and he hated 
the police, he had all forms of authority. He felt like they were, he needed to be in open rebellion against them all the time. And it was almost a betrayal of his family to not be. Um, our, the police chief down there, of course, the chaplain, I had a very close relationship with him. And Brian would come when we had uh, vacation Bible school or when we had a special event, you know, he would come and just play with the kids. And he was a, a godly, a great role model, really great guy. And he came in when the kids were uh, at vacation Bible school and had been slowly building a relationship with this kid. And so I'd been talking to him and teaching him, you know, this, this is a person, you know, these are not your, all your preconceptions. Don't, don't think so much about what you think about the police, you know, for example, think about what do you think about this man? And so with his little mind, you know, he's processing through that and I remember so clearly the picture of, uh, you know, Chief Corb picking this little boy up and shaking him and him just giggling. You know, they're playing over the, they're playing some kind of a game and I see him across the way. And this boy who would not have made eye contact with him now is just, just giggling with him. And so what I, my, my point with that is that there was no, with a little boy like that, you know, there was some theological truths he was learning and kind of praying with him and talking to him. There was no great dissertation-worthy theological breakthrough, right? It was the power of relationships that disproved what he'd already assumed. Uh, and I think that was really important. The more substantive example, um, which I, I can bounce around through several of those, uh, I try to figure out a way to, to tell it with maintaining uh confidentiality and everything of course. Uh, so nay specific details in this story may be lies uh just for your you know just to <laughs> the names have been changed to protect the innocent that's right yeah <laughs> or, or the guilty as the case uh, <laughs> so we had a a situation with cps um where there was a mom who was uh, abusing prescription drugs. And I got to go with her and the kids to the, the CPS family meeting. I don't know if you guys ever had the, the situation being involved in that, but before they yeah, take, yeah. okay. So it, it, there's a meeting to try to figure out what resources are available. You know, what, what's a path forward? what's a plan we can make so that the kids can stay with their family as the best thing. I think some people imagine that CPS works very, very quickly, you know, that uh, it is. I wish. Yeah, right, exactly. The, the, the CPS works way too slow, right? Um, Sometimes it, too late. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, yeah. the, see, I, I can just say that one of the most frustrating things for me is that we have designated like police units that deal with animal abuse and that child abuse is handled by undertrained, under-resourced, under-staffed social workers. Um, yeah. You guys may know the first case of child abuse. I mean, they always call the cops, too. Like, yeah. when CPS comes out, it's not like, I'm going to go by myself to these abusive parents that are drug addicts and potential criminals. No, they call us, and we end up dealing with 90% of the issues on, on site. You know, yeah. so it ends up being our problem. although they they really do shackle the police's hands uh cps you know it's always well, we got to go through cps it's cps's investigation it's like okay uh well that's 
you know, that's a problem. And, it, and it's, it's really holding up our jobs. We could, we could make the removal, put the kids in with parents or, or put the kids in with grandparents or, you know, there, there could be another parent in the picture. Uh, but we're kind of going through this weird bureaucratic civil process when there's clearly, you know, criminal wrongdoing somewhere here. We're just, you know, not able to look hard enough because CPS is involved. Right. The, the division of the responsibility and the ability to do something about it is absurd. If you were yeah. if you were designing a system from scratch, there is no universe that you would deliberately come up with the system we have. Uh, in the United States, the first child abuse case was prosecuted under an animal abuse statute. Um, and the lawyer's argument was, if this had been done to a dog, you would do something to these parents. And I'd like to think we've come a long way since there, but we have not. Um, sorry that <laughs> no and at the same time we're talking about no, yeah, the police and, and we're, we're not to derail your example that you were getting to but you know we're having this conversation about defunding the police and, and removing some of that money and putting it into education well education already gets billions of dollars in funding more than the police and and I think this conversation about defunding you know maybe reallocating and demilitarizing the police I mean Joe Biden for all his his quirks and everything was promulgating a lot of this militarization of the police you know he was the one on the on the floor screaming and yelling about they're going to mug me and and rape my my daughter and and all these different things and and giving them the authority to militarize the police and give them i want i want the police to have the ak's and the and the ar-15s because the drug cartels have them so I, I just think it's this really huge and nobody nobody wants to drudge up those clips until you know <laughs> till it's too late this is this is really a result of in in the 80s the the defunding of the institutions and we defunded boys and girls homes and a lot of people you know all you ever hear about is horror stories from boys and girls homes which you don't ever hear any good things and there's there's millions of children that went through that system and were never abused and and had a good experience and had it they lived because they were in those systems otherwise they would have probably been murdered by an abusive parent or just neglected and died deaths in despair and and they lived and had normal lives and those are completely defunded and, and that could fix the problem. And it's just, it's a tragedy that the, the defunding of our institutions, um, not just mental institutions, but like I said, the boys and girls homes, it's, it's really, I would say probably 60% of the problem in criminal yeah. justice at this point. Yeah. I really think that the argument for defunding the police, you know, obviously people use that slogan to mean lots of different things. I think that 20 years from now, you could spend less money on policing uh, because you could spend more money on some of those things on the front end, but you can't, like the order's yeah. all wrong. You know, if you deep right. on the police before those long-term structural changes have been made. Anarchy. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not, it's, it's, it's absurd. And yeah. yeah, we're seeing the, the results of that in, in many places like New York and Baltimore, Chicago, obviously. Right. There's no reason to theorize about it when it's happening uh, in real life. I, I, I definitely think that there are things that police officers are burdened with that they shouldn't be burdened with. Um, and no offense to you, Quentin, or anybody else, but uh, most officers are terrible at making death notifications. And so as a chaplain, oh, me, me being able to go and make the death notification was the best thing. And I, I don't I'll tell a, like a, a quick anecdotal story once you're done with that. No, I, I, I was just going to say that it's not me trying to be arrogant or whatever, saying I'm excellent at giving death notifications because it sucks every single time. It does. It's still, it's better to not have that on the officer because I can spend more time thinking about it, figuring out how to do it appropriately. When we had guys who were 
you know, they get a call, somebody's suicidal or whatever, we need to get a mental health deputy in there. Can you come talk to them until the deputy gets there or whatever? There are some officers that I dreaded to see them there because I knew they were making things worse because they were dealing with a situation they didn't have any skill in, you know? And so I do think there's some truth to that, but I feel like the hysteria and the anti-police mindset is really crazy. I think that example I just gave about Chief Corb and the little boy, to me, that kind of community-oriented policing, proactive policing may even be- a- Oh, it's the best, man. Yeah. It saves you so much money in the long run. I can't find the study now. I looked for it. But the defund the police stupidity is so overwhelming online that I've had a hard time with the search. But there was a study that showed that you saved 3 or $4 in prisons for every dollar spent on policing. Uh, but the problem is that the incentives- and the costs are not borne by the same people. You know, the local government doesn't want to be responsible for raising taxes to increase policing. And the state government or the federal government are the ones that bear the cost of the prisons and stuff. And so even though on net you could save tax dollars and improve society, the political will is just not there. Sorry, Quentin, I know you want to say something. No, no, that was fantastic. Uh, just to touch on the point you made, I, I had a death notification um, where... A, a father of a family had shot himself. It was a death notification that never needed to really happen because it happened on scene um, and the family saw it occur, right? So it's not like we have to tell um, the family what had just happened. There's not a whole lot left of uh, the, this, this person's head, okay? So, and somebody in my chain of command went up to this person who was a family member and was like, you know, I, I, I regret to inform you, but it appears your father is deceased. Like, no kidding. And I, I like, I like went up to her and hugged her and let her cry. And, you know, it's like, you know, your father's going, he's with Jesus. He, uh, the situation is not what you think, but I'm not going to go into it because it's a HIPAA it would be a HIPAA violation, but uh, terminal illness. He had a terminal illness, right? And he was just basically just sped up the process, more or less. But he was in, in pretty, suffering pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it, the, my interaction with her was more spiritual and it was like comforting. And most, <laughs> most police officers are just, it was like, well, I can't even say most. That was a really unusual thing to, to go up and do or say. I'm, if, if you notice, I'd still have a hard time describing that, that interaction because it was just, it's so weird. I'm not laughing to make light of it. It was really messed up. That's just kind of one of the ways, I guess, that you learn to, to deal with it. But um, it, it, I was just mind, I was just mind blown. And it, I continue to be, I mean, I'm still, I haven't, I guess, really processed that fully. But yeah, there needs to be a lot better training on uh, social interactions in desperate times or during death notifications. That is not even something that you touch on in the police academy or in training at all. You know, you learn how to do death notifications based on whoever trained you in the car. So what, who, whatever field training officer, and those guys vary as far as their efficacy and intellect or, or uh, you know, sociological prowess, right? They're, 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 they're definitely different, each one of them. Some of them are really good, some of them are not. And, and some of them are really uncomfortable. And there's a lot of pressure in society placed on on cops not to be religious or spiritual because it's a 
violation of it's not but you know a lot of people think it's a violation of separation of church and state i mean you can pretty much just read your audience right and figure out who you're dealing with when you're in their home and um so it's uh it's an interesting it's interesting that you brought it up and it's it's something that needs to be addressed there's almost no training on it yeah i think it's really that one of the biggest weaknesses to me is that the most important thing a chaplain does is show up, right? And we can talk about that later because I think it plays in broader on the crisis, like the, the ministry of presence is what we called it. Um, and a cop has got other stuff to do, you know, and it's got to go. And with a fan, with a chaplain, you know, I had the freedom to go that night or that day or whatever it happened and then follow up a couple of days later and spend an hour with them or whatever, that if you've got other things going on or your radio may go off at any time you just don't have the ability to be present with somebody which is what somebody in grief really needs um and so i i just think the whole system is almost designed for failure as cynical as that sounds well it's it's honestly uh because police are already underfunded you know you could be present and be with somebody if you weren't still on the on the radio's clock you know basically if you weren't still uh available for calls and and you're gonna have to be available for some calls like if there's something serious going down at you know an active shooter or robbery in progress or something like that you're gonna have to go but like your day-to-day i'm well your day-to-day can be just like that and i've experienced that but but realistically you're probably gonna have a little bit of slack in there um and you should be more available. And the only reason you're not is because there's already a personnel crisis. Yeah. I did that. Um, so my undergrad is in math, uh, like Sal mentioned. Uh, and so when, when we had a difficulty convincing city council that we needed more officers, um, I went into the dispatch software and logged, you know, how much time on the average shift was a guy active on a call? What kind of call was it? And started running some probabilities. And I don't remember the numbers offhand, but when I was able to say to city council, okay, what are the odds that are acceptable to you that two, you know, crimes are going on at the same time and nobody's available, you know, because if you bring on another officer, the number will be 5%. Right now it's 20% or whatever it may be. And I think that until it you happens really- all too often, mm-hmm. because the, the, the people making the decisions, they look at it and say, okay, Hey, you're busy for 40% of your shift or whatever, 60% you're doing reports or whatever. And they don't realize, well, then what are the odds that if you've got five officers, you know, three of them are busy at one, or, you know, that, that like statistical inference of what does it mean to bring on another officer and somebody doesn't have to make a choice about which calls more important. Obviously, you know, you're doing it, somebody ran a red light or whatever, and there's something important, but I think that until you really look at it and say, hey, we don't have enough officers to be as confident as I would like to be, that there are always going to be enough on shift. And when you say how many, how many, how much property crime is prevented and violent crimes are prevented just by the presence of that officer, if, if society could, could calculate that and really make those calculations better, it would be obvious that there's a huge staffing crisis. And that you you do, you design it for failure. You cripple people so they're not able to do what needs to be done. That in turn builds a negative impression of the police, which next time makes your job a little bit harder. And when you cycle that out for a generation, well, <laughs> you know, turn on the news and there we are. 
I haven't looked at the statistics, but I'd, I'd be curious if either of you have have any insight onto this. But given given the circumstances of current events, given the atmosphere of current events, what is recruiting like for law enforcement looking like right now? I can't imagine that. Terrible. Very, yeah. very. It was already bad. It, exactly. it never recovered. It, it, it never recovered. Sorry, you're breaking up. So I'm, I'm, I didn't realize I was cutting you off. Um, but uh, it never recovered from the Holder, uh, you know, Eric Holder and Obama, their, their administration and, and his tenure as attorney general. It, it never really recovered from that. The war on cops there. I left at that time. I mean, I got out at basically at the end of 2015 beginning of 2016 somewhere around there um and i'd been in law enforcement for a while at that point and i was just like you you come up when you've been doing it for about five or or six years where you're just like i'm going to get out permanently or i'm going to make this a career and i was just like done uh and a lot of my friends did they just left we went and did other things i went back to school um so it never really recovered i i saw a huge drop in personnel um funny enough recently there is more budget in most most departments to hire personnel you can't do it and to be honest with you too many kids get themselves into sticky situations online and and with their business with narcotics or whatever uh some really crappy stuff goes on when you're when you're a kid now where they're not even going to be able to pass background checks or or polygraph that most kids can't even do it so um and that's there's a there's a theory about over socialization people can look into what happens when somebody becomes over socialized i think you're actually seeing that despite what people think that most kids have social uh disorders they have some sort of problem with interaction because they won't look at you or they're on their phone they're actually over socialized that's a symptom of over socialization actually and so uh that generally leads to a higher chance of your interaction uh, with somebody who's doing something illegal or draws you into some sort of illegal activity. And so most kids, they're not eligible probably to serve in law enforcement anymore. So you have an eligibility crisis. You also have the state, this particular state's a border state, and you have a lot more, uh, you have a, a, an increase in Hispanic population, right? And a lot of those people grew up in poor environments in bad neighborhoods, and maybe they were involved in gangs or something when they're younger. And I knew of a guy, he's still a good friend of mine, awesome guy. A uh, very good Christian man, uh, but he was uh, very much involved in gang activity. And although he escaped clean and he didn't have a criminal record, there's no he can't deny that he wasn't a part of a gang, right? So there's no way he can be uh, in law enforcement. And that's really it. it really, kind of I understand why, and I'm not going to argue for gang members being in law enforcement, but it sucks for him because he is an awesome guy, and in his life, the way he leads it today is 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 honestly is a model citizen. Um, but, uh, I don't see it getting any better. I actually don't know how it'll, it'll recover. I think that law enforcement is going to end up having to be federalized. We're going to have to have some sort of patrol, uh, category and then some sort of gendarmes. Um, and then we're going to have an investigatory bureau that is, is, uh, basically under the FBI where where it's going to be more local or maybe the FBI becomes expanded. I think, I don't really know how that's going to work just the way state law and federal law and the supremacy clause works. I think that could be a serious problem. Uh, and that's why I say that, that it wouldn't be necessarily the FBI running this thing, but it would be some sort of investigatory bureau under the department of justice and FBI. And I think all police are going to have to go under DOJ 
And I think they're going to have to eventually open up enlistment as what I would call into the police service to 17, 18 year olds, something that you start in high school. Otherwise, if you don't catch the kids early, you're not going to have qualified candidates to become uh, officers. That's the way I see it. Headed. I have always actually advocated for that. As, as jackbooted that sounds and as authoritative and, and awful as that sounds, I think it actually would be better than the system that we have now. Well, you look at examples it would be more like, uniform. You, you look at examples like Israel where they have mandatory service. I mean, there there's something to be said about the discipline that can be had from knowing that for two years out of your life, you will be dedicated to the to the state, if you will, and, and right. working for the state and getting some sort of education, be it police, be it medical, be it, you know, mechanical, wherever your aptitude ends up getting you. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate for mandatory service. I wish that that was the case. I know a lot of people would not agree with that and that people should have the choice. Uh, and, and that can lead us down to a, a totalitarian regime. And we might not be in that place anymore where we could have that sort of uh, upbringing where you know you're going to have the the expectation to to serve for a minimum of two years. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree with what Quentin's talking about that there should be some sort of. Man- I, I would not want to see it like Israel. Just having spent my time there, one of my good friends was in the IDF. Uh, Israel is a totalitarian state. I don't care what anybody says here. You go and live there for long enough. There are no laws. They do not have a penal code. They will arrest you for whatever they see fit at that time. I would like the the idea of enlistment and service similar to that. But, you know, there's a lot of countries that do that as well. But like as far as the way law and order is actually and, and my buddy was actually a cop over there, too. And the penal code function and the court system, that is definitely not a situation that we want to see here because it is very totalitarian. I mean, I, I probably. I've been all over the world and I, and I, I was in Russia for a time. Uh, I don't know that I've ever actually seen any place more totalitarian than Israel. It's, it's a, it's pretty interesting. And I'm not talking bad about that state and I don't want to disparage them, but uh, that's a, that's a topic for another day, but, but that's, you know, the, the idea behind it is good, but the way it's executed there is definitely not something you'd want replicated here. That's most things, though. The idea is always yeah. nice. But then in the execution, I mean, we can talk about socialism as a great idea, but in practicality, right. it just never works out, right? You get the Venezuela model or you get the Sweden model. But then even Sweden and Scandinavia as a whole is very homogenous. It's very, you know, ethnocentric and in one one way or the other. And it just doesn't work for America. I just don't see that sort of no, I agree. I don't economy think work working. Here. Is that just, possible? Talk to me a little bit about current events and, and how that's been shaping up with with being a senior pastor at your congregation. Have you seen any, um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests coming to to your area and, and having been affected locally? And then obviously we can talk about and, and get into the shutdowns and how that's affected your congregation and the mentality behind that. Um, I do want to pull up a, an article from the Daily Wire and it's talking about the Grace Baptist Church in Troy, New York. Um, Protesters repeatedly shouting Black Lives Matter, even harassed and blocked churchgoers while they were trying to get in with their young children, using a megaphone to scream at the families, shaming and threatening the parents with calls to CPS. Um, Assaults, harassment, protesting having occurred over the last uh, few months. Um, according to the viral videos posted online, the church has refused to close or back down, directing men from the parish to help escort fellow church worshipers uh, inside as they were blocked by BLM protesters. 
first and foremost, what are your thoughts on that sort of behavior? And second, have you had to, have you been exposed to that or experiencing any of that? So, uh, for my, my thoughts about it, I'm not a, not a fan. Um, the, I think that you have a really difficult situation. So I, I think that from a Christian point of view, you know, the Bible says to submit yourselves as the governing authorities, uh, basically, unless there is a direct contradiction from a higher authority, uh, you know, from God. And so in the case of when there is a generally applicable shutdown, I think that a church that is refusing to comply is acting unwisely. Uh, you know, I think they're hurting their testimony in the community. I think they're creating some unnecessary friction that's going to set them back later. Now, from a First Amendment standpoint, uh, forbidding the free exercise of religion when corporately gathering is such a central tenet of Christianity. You know, you see in California them banning singing. Um, I think that when the government starts to impose something that is so central to the free exercise of religion, uh, I think they cross a line. You know, I think I can say, hey, it's not a good idea for you to do that without saying that it's right for the government to be able to stop you, you know, to be able to impose those kind of penalties. And so on the first part, I think that the church is, you know, I have to be really careful about how I say this because our, our society, I think, broadly has lost the ability to recognize that multiple people can be at fault in the same situation. Um, you know, you call it victim blaming or whatever. But the truth is that if I'm running down the road in all black and you're drunk and you hit me, it's both of our fault. You know, it's primarily your fault. Like you're the actor who's causing the immediate crisis. But I bear some responsibility for running in black in the dark. And my me bearing my responsibility does not diminish your responsibility, right? Somehow we've lost we've, all ability to recognize personal accountability and nuance in society. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. We get so all or nothing on it that yeah. it's like if I admit that, hey, maybe you should have been you shouldn't have been drunk at this party with people you don't know. That suddenly I'm saying that rape is good. You know, I, I mean, there's a weird a weird lack. Everything uh, has become very binary, right? We're, we're, we're even seeing it now with the mass debate, right? And I brought this up on my personal page a lot. You know, there's a hashtag running around that you either mask it or casket, and it becomes this binary. If you don't wear a mask, you're going to die. Or if you don't wear a mask, we're going to kill you. I mean, that's the only two ways that I can think about it when you have such a binary explanation, right? And, and the whole I don't support what Black Lives Matters is doing from a Marxist totalitarian fascist point of view and how they're executing some of their things. But it doesn't mean I don't care about black people. And we're, we're getting this, you know, for lack of a better term, we're getting this very black and white definition of how things are being played out. And, and in the Venn diagram of my socioeconomical beliefs, there's a lot of overlap. And I think for the most part, everyone's in the top of that bell curve where we all actually do think the same, but when it comes down to it, we have to stick with our tribe. The, the extreme left and extreme right, they net the same effect. It's like pulling left and right on an Etch-a-Sketch. It just goes straight. You're just, you're just basically netting the same thing. So, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to go, oh, it's all, it's all you know, by design or whatever, but, but 
you can model these sorts of things. Like if you facilitate extreme left or extreme right movements in a country, you can actually pretty effectively model where that thing is going to go. And it, it's, it's having an effect where, uh, you know, communication can't even occur. You know, we can't even have a discussion anymore. There's a lot of breakdown. There's no transfer of ideas, cultural philosophy within our society anymore. So it's very difficult for us to work together. And it's going into becoming a serious problem very soon, if it hasn't already. Yeah, I think you see it that, you know, when a news article comes out, some people's first instinct is, let me go see what Rachel Maddow or what Rush Limbaugh says about this right. and decide what I think. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. Hmm. And I, I read everybody so I can make my own, yep. you know, conclusion. Uh, I do that on purpose. But you're right. Most people, they, they live in their information uh, ghettos and that's that is where they want to be and they're in this little bubble and they just want to sit in their echo chamber and bounce ideas off the wall and that's everybody else you know basically who's in their same little informational ghetto yeah and an example of that is uh, i just recently read a vice article that was for all intents and purposes it was excusing the behavior of antifa and calling it counter violence when they actually are doing violence and and some of the wordsmithing and the double speak and a lot of the 1984 aspects of how this article was written was just very alarming but i read it and i and i digested it and i understood where they were coming from I didn't agree with it. I think it's Aristotle that says that you can entertain an idea, but not necessarily accept it. And that's the mark of intelligence. Not to say that I am superior, <laughs> superior in my intellect, but if you can, if you can digest different points of view and, and accept them or not accept them, but still take them on, and then you can have a, a thoughtful conversation, that's what's missing. Quentin, you alluded to the fact that we can't have these conversations. And I mean, there's man on the street videos that, that are out there where people will bring up stats and figures and and the logical explanations knowing damn well that you can't have that sort of conversation when someone is emotionally charged right you can tell somebody in in a in a death notification right you're gonna get over it you know death happens to everybody you know it's statistically you, you know you're you're more than likely to die if you have a terminal right you can get all these stats and figures and be very logical about it but in the heat of an emotional conversation you're just going to get bum rushed with emotion and, and potentially violence. So, I mean, I, I just think we're, we're up against this. Well, we should have a logical conversation about it. And here's all the facts and figures. And on the other side, you've got this highly emotional topic of Black Lives Matter or, you know, police brutality. And there's a lot of emotion to that. Me personally have never encountered police brutality. I've been pulled over quite a few times, you know, for, for this, that, or the other reason. And I, I have a license to carry. And in those situations where I had my gun on me and I was pulled over, I have never had a bad interaction. And I can use that. And, and that conversation happens all the time. And, you, and people just say, well, Sal, you've, you've, you don't live the life. You don't live in, in the ghetto. You don't live in this. I, I, I get that. But we're, we're not coming to the table with that understanding that your well, be situation. You touched on something kind of implicitly very interesting what's your what that because i've heard that too what that implies is that cops are only racist when they're in the ghetto but as a point of fact if a person was racist and you were pulled over and they're like oh i just don't like hispanics wouldn't they be more likely to maybe be racist and awful to you outside of a neighborhood where people could record them being terrible to you yeah i i I mean why does racism and i have heard this many times why is it only occurring in the ghetto or in the barrio like 
why doesn't it occur everywhere? I mean, cause you, you rarely see, I've, I've never just seen somebody, you know, getting the crap kicked out of them down a, a farm road somewhere, you know, because they were a minority. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it has, I'm sure somebody can post in the comments. There's just no videos. But <laughs> it's just, you know, but back to the emotive aspect of the propaganda of this entire virus. I hear this often and it's, I'm not going to wear a mask because I'm not going to live in fear. God commands us not to be in fear. Fear is of the devil. Yada, yada, yada. We've, we've heard it. Right. And that's just, to me, that rings really hollow. Like that's, that's some pretty good propaganda for, for somebody who's not really thinking about this from a logical or even a biblical aspect. So I wanted you to touch on that because I'm sure you've thought about this plenty of times. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, to me, it's, it's really absurd, right? If you follow that through, you know, what would you say? Well, you know, if you wear a mask, next thing you know, they're going to be strapping you into your own car and telling you how fast you can drive on the interstate or whatever. I mean, it's, there, there's a certain uh, inconsistency to it. And from an emotional standpoint, I get it. Because telling me I have to wear a mask, it's directly connected to my body, you know, in a way that's, it, it's not logical, but it has an emotional difference on people. But so people feel the need to justify it. And they feel like they are under attack, like it's being imposed on them. And so they, they're looking for some kind of justification. And they're looking for a way, when you talk about that tribalism and stuff, to demonize the other side. So the people saying, hey, you need to wear a mask everywhere or you're going to die tomorrow, um, are saying, hey, you're stupid and you are inconsiderate and you are whatever. And so now the reaction is not, well, how do I logically deal with this? The reaction is, well, what, ne you know, what negative things can I put on the other side? Say, well, you're living in fear. You, know, you don't have enough faith. Um, I have a friend who's a senior pastor in the area who he, they never stopped holding services. Uh, you know, they don't social distance or whatever. And he says he preaches faith, not fear. Well, so there is certainly a truth to that, right? I mean, if, the, if I were in communist China and they were saying, hey, you, you can't worship, uh, we're going to arrest you, we're going to hurt you, then I'd have to say, okay, I have to choose faith over fear. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I have to say, you know, God's able to keep you from throwing me into the fiery furnace, able to protect me. But even if he doesn't, I'll never bow down to your idols. Okay, So there is a place to say, I'm willing to accept certain risks. And I think it is a straw man to pretend that anybody's advocating a zero risk life. Uh, it's just not possible. Right. But the, the scripture that always comes to mind for me when somebody says that is when Jesus is being tempted early on in the synoptic gospels. And Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're really the son of God, jump off because it's written that his angels will keep charge over you and will keep you from dashing your foot against the stone. So, you know, Satan's moment to Jesus is if you're really the son of God, if you really believe that, then prove it, you know, jump. If you're really the son of God, then God's not going to allow you to hit the rocks. And Jesus's response is, it is written, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, there are times that there is a faith-based reason to assume some risk. And then there are times that it's presumptuous. You're testing God. You're saying, okay, I'm going to go uh, ride my motorcycle in the rain 100 miles an hour without a helmet. God, if you're real, prove that you're real by protecting me. You know, and Jesus says, no, you shouldn't test the Lord your God. And I think that some people, and I want to be really careful because I know there's a broad spectrum. 
But I think some people who say, faith, not fear, I'm not going to wear a mask, are really challenging God, saying, you know, prove this. And so certainly Jesus wasn't willing to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and accept risk just for the sake of accepting risk. And so uh, neither will I. So from a standpoint of, we touched on the fact that there are, you know, state mandates and, and, you know, we're going to allow you to worship under certain conditions. Um, you know, this, this is an article that comes from bitterwinter.org and it's talking about communist China and they must raise the national flag and sing the national anthem to reopen church. Do you foresee a time and we're seeing it again in California, right? You are not allowed to sing in a place of worship because of X, Y, and Z. Do you foresee in a Democrat city or a democratic nation where that can become a reality? Are we slipping towards this totalitarian regime of, we'll allow you to do certain things. And, and this goes with the mask as well. We'll allow you to do certain things as long as you comply with our directives. What, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, yes. I think that there's a spectrum, right? Um, you know, we have to comply with building codes and the ADA and stuff. And so there are general rules that when they're practical and realistic that you have to comply with to operate in society, right? That's just one of the rules. Um, and that's, that's fine. And I think that for a while lockdowns were in that, you know, um, I think that masks, you know, the governor of Texas exempted churches. I, I think you can make an argument about masks one way or the other. I think saying you can worship, but you can't sing to me is crossing the line. You know, uh, I think that that is, that's gone too far. That's attacking too close to the heart of what corporate worship is, you know? So we were, we closed down services, opened up services and have now closed down again temporarily uh, because we did have some, a couple, a family that was infected with the virus, one of whom passed away. Uh, last week. And so while we wait to make sure there wasn't spread within church and try to figure out how we're going to cope with some of that, uh, we've, we've quit having services in person again and switched back to online. Um, and, and so all that to say that I'm really sensitive to it. And yet, I, I feel like even power that's used for the right reason is very rarely given back <laughs> Um, that even if there is a legitimate crisis, and I think there is, that forces them to do these things, that later on, once that power has been taken, it, it's very rare for it to be given back. I think if you read the Federalist Papers, the Founding Fathers talked about this, about the real purpose of checks and balances and the Congress being given the ability to declare war while the um, president was given the authority to be commander-in-chief, which obviously we found some creative ways around. The purpose was that they knew that once the commander in chief had raised a standing army that was at his discretion, he wasn't going to, or now he or she wasn't going to give that power back, right? That's a, that's a tremendous power. And so the founding fathers were very afraid of that. And so they intended for it to be under the ultimate control of Congress. And so I think that we know that once people realize they can take that control they're going to keep doing it unless they're stopped. Now, I don't think, I'm not a consequentialist. And so if that was the right thing to do at the time, the fact that it may potentially have negative consequences down the line doesn't affect the morality of it in the moment. But I think we do have to be aware of it and say, okay, now that we know there's been this expansion, how do we stop it? 
what's really going to happen, in my opinion, is that the lever that churches are going to be faced with is going to be property tax, right? So our church averages a couple hundred people in attendance, and we have $2 million worth of property ballpark, you know, good insurance estimate or whatever. If you said, hey, other charities, other nonprofits are not required to pay property taxes, and churches won't either, as long as you insert feminist, LGBTQ, whatever here, then suddenly churches are going to be faced with compliance or extinction. And in the case of- I agree with that completely. And it's, you know, the purpose, the reason for churches being tax exempt According to Jefferson, I mean, if you actually do some research, people are pretty um, undereducated about this and over vocal, was that they said the power to tax was the power to destroy. And that if you could tax, you'd have to have a minute control that would be incompatible with freedom of religion. And, right. you know, I, I don't necessarily want to get into the Hyde Amendment and stuff like that. But no, that, that's good, though. I mean, and people don't realize that the only reason, look, culture. Politics is downstream from culture, right? And culture was downstream from uh, the body of the church at one point in time. The, the church was the ultimate authority. It was the ultimate societal governing device. It, it is where people uh, received their, you know, uh, their their moral outlook. You know, it, to put it lightly. I mean, there's a whole lot of implication behind that, but. LBJ realized in the 60s that the churches were a problem for him. And the the only way you get to keep your tax exempt status is if you avoid political discussion in the pulpit, right? Well, that's unconstitutional. No one's challenged this really, and not effectively. Uh, but the, the entire what what he did there was completely unconstitutional. Um and ultimately politics and Christianity are very much intertwined, and he knew that. Um, the church is extremely political because the discussions we're having about the fabric of society and morality and how the government affects our morality or twists it or invents new morality would be put in ultimate check by the church and by very ancient documentation, right? So it was, it was a serious complication when trying to develop this uh, year zero man, this, this man of the state, right. Or a state that encompassed the majority of your life. And so we're seeing the ramifications of that now, and we're going to see the ramifications of it very, very soon in a very serious way, because when you have a church school who is going through a hiring process in the future, can they prohibit trans individuals from teaching now? No, they can't. So you will have trannies teach your kids. And it won't matter if it's in a private religious school or in a public school or a public library, wherever they're going to have access to your children. And to me, that's completely unacceptable. I'm not even what most people would call an extremely conservative guy, but I have kids that's not happening over my dead body, but you don't have a choice in that now. And it all started there. That's when it all started. Yeah. And I I think that that's huge because when you say churches can't be involved in politics now, I, as a pastor, am not going to get involved in partisan politics and endorsing candidates and stuff because it's going to alienate. It's going to alienate people that I would like to reach, right? But to me, there's a line that's crossed where I'm selling my birthright, like Esau. You know, the things that are really eternally important 
for sure. minor things. And yet, right? I, I have to always put that and yet because the culture redefines everything as politics. And so if you are going to let the enemy, uh, enemies, you know, a bold word, but if you're going to let the other side of the debate We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-designed websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash new normal and save 20% on your custom website today. Tell you what things you're allowed to talk about and what you're not allowed to talk about. If they say you can't talk about politics and we get to define politics, that's huge. I mean, that's just incomprehensible to, to give up that level of control. You've given away the whole game from the beginning. And so when you say, you know, that we're going to take away your tax exemption or, or whatever, taking away your tax exemption is a very subtle, you talked about 1984 earlier, right, is a very subtle redefinition of what happened. Because it's not like churches were rightfully taxed, and then were given an exception out of the benevolence of the government. It's that they were considered mutually separate things that the church had influence on the government through people, but no established religion, and the government had no right to impose restrictions on churches. And so when you start to really get into that. The- Sorry, not to interrupt you, but going back to the foundation of this, mm-hmm. the church was never taxed. Right. The, 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 there, there was no, the, the church had the power to tax, mm-hmm. actually, and the church did tax in the form of tithes, and they even taxed the state mm-hmm. in, in the form of tithes from the state or from the king's purse. There has never been a point in time where the church has been taxed. Uh, you see this, you, you, I don't even think going back to the foundations of the Anglican church, I think the Catholic system remained and there was no taxation by the state on the church. It was still the same process. So if we would have as a nation taxed churches from the beginning, it would have been setting a completely new religious precedent. And as far as at that point is a church just an arm to collect revenue for the government. I mean, you're, you're asking some really strange philosophical questions. I don't even think they wanted to go down that route. And that further solidified, you know, the, the thought of a, a, a church directly tied and being an agent of the state if, if you could tax it, right? right. So, you know, you, I, I think they foresaw all of those potential questions and just avoided them entirely and continued a tradition uh, for the most part anyway. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And I... I so that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, although I didn't do it very eloquently, that when you say we're going to remo- remove churches tax exemption, you make it sound like the churches have been given a special privilege, that's a historical anomaly, and now we're going to switch back to the default assumption that churches will be taxed. And that's historically and constitutionally just wrong. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And so when you talk about, I mean, historically, right, what was the first major attack on Christianity. Uh, Well, so initially it was from the synagogue, right? You had internal debates between Judaism and Christianity, um, and you had some persecution there. But the first state-sponsored, really, 
uh, was from Caesar and saying, okay, you have to offer a pinch of salt to Caesar. You have to, you can worship your own God, but you have to worship Caesar too. And that's very subtle. Um, that kind of syncretism, it says, yeah, you can have your religion as long as you're also involved in our religion. And that's because worshiping Caesar, you know, Augustus had declared himself the son of God, deified Caesar after his death. You know, I guess, I think it was Octavius who realized that how much better it would be to declare yourself a God while you were still alive and uh, really get some of those perks. Um, and so worshiping Caesar was political and it was social and it was religious. They said, you, you, can, wor you can worship Christ. You can say Christ is Lord, but you have to say Caesar's Lord too. And then, uh, of course, Christians refused to do that. It was a huge deal. They called uh, Christians and Jews atheists because they didn't worship idols. Uh, the three original, if you read uh, Justin's dialogue with Trifo, uh, the three original attacks on Christianity were that they were atheists, cannibals, and incestuous. Um, and it's because they didn't worship idols. They called each other brother and sister. And they were always talking about eating some guy's body and drinking his blood. And so they were, they were, I, that was not accidental, right? That was a deliberate twisting of a kernel of truth to make the uh, Christian groups persona non grata, right? It was a, a deliberate isolation because they knew that it was a threat to the empire. So modern communist China, it's not worshiping Caesar. I, I mean, there's a sense in which Xi Jinping is deified kind of, you know, within the communist system. Um, the religion, there's the party. And I'm going to say that you see the same thing here in the U.S. Our religion is scientism, right? Um, there's a difference in science and scientism. I don't remember who drew that distinction. And credentialism. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's a new thing where yeah. uh, all authority is de derived from credentials and nobody can be uh, well-versed in any topic without the appropriate credentials. But once you have the credentials, you have people who have you know, PhDs in economics that are pontificating about epidemiology or what, you know, it's, it, it's that presence, that yep. credential within the cult of scientism. I think it was C.S. Lewis that drew the distinction between science and scientism. And so in, in communist China, okay, yeah, you have to bow the knee and fly the communist flag and, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance, whatever it may be. Here in the United States, what I think it's going to be is you can be a church and you can maintain your tax exemption as long as you're willing to and you know submit to what these people with credentials say submit to the cult of scientism um and you can really I think that's where the that, that's where the frog in the boiling pot is is coming into effect right so i mean it can be as mundane as trivial as wearing a mask and people feel as though what's the next step and you you alluded to that you know if they're going to make me wear a mask and, and I have no personal choice over that. What are they going to make me do next? And we continue to give the state this control. We continue to give them the authority to tell us we can and can't worship in certain times. You know, at what point do we just stand up and say no more? And we've talked about this in, in earlier episodes where the conservative party hasn't conserved anything. We've given up so much ground. And at some point, there will be a tipping point where we have to just say no more. And what is that catalyst going to be? What is that trigger event going to be? Probably what Justin's talking about. Yeah. I, I, would be, I would be willing to bet. And look, I want to make it very clear that I agree with everything Justin is saying. I do not share his faith. Okay? He and I have very different religious outlooks. But this is a very serious conversation. And I, I say I'm not what most people would consider conservative. I, I, 
I'm, I'm very socially conservative. I'm, I'm economically probably a lot more liberal than most people would like, but I, I'm, I believe society has to be conserved for future generations and everything that I, I do in my life should help perpetuate that. So I, I'm not trying to, I, I just want to make it clear that I have no vested interest in what you're saying from a spiritual aspect, but you're right. And truths, truths are sacred. Um, and you should be able to say whatever you want, as long as it's the truth and it's true. And, and this is a Christian society and I respect that. And if we're going in this long slide, there's serious consequences to this. And people should be aware of what's happening and what the source of it was. Well, we can see the, um, the source of the fact that, you know, BLM is admittedly saying that they're Marxist trained and, and they're the, the Marxist agenda is, is the decentralization of the family. It's, it's going back to the fatherlessness conversation, right? We can look at the weather underground and see the, the tactics that they did in, in infiltrating institution, not only the church, but the, the schools. And we're just seeing this slowly degrade. And, and what we're seeing in the most mundane argument is the mask, right? But it will trickle back up and we're going to be talking about what Justin's alluding to, you know, will the church be, you know, vilified for their defiance to the state? And we're, we're so, getting into a very scary situation if it continues to promulgate yeah. in that way. So one of the things I wanted to say was people need to study power philosophy and what power and what absolute power looks like. The government is absolutely powerful. They have basically a uh, the the basically the sole right to use violence against the, the citizenry. Right, you you really have to justify yourself. The government actually doesn't, if you look at it from a, a meta political standpoint. They're they're a very dangerous entity, but it can be used for a lot of good. But ultimately, without codifying freedoms, without having that codified, without documents like that being written as a foundational document you're always going to be looking and be up against the wall uh, in a situation or a system like, like China or North Korea. You know, people can say, oh, these are human universal rights. Everyone should have, well, sorry, it just doesn't work that way. They don't have these rights in Korea. They don't have these rights in China. They don't have these rights in many parts of Africa. These are things that we did write down and we put little lines on a map and said, hey, guess what? Within these bounds that we control, and if we don't control them, we don't get them. This is the law of the land and this is what you have this is given to you by god or your creator but ultimately these are rights that we codified we we kind of came up with them right you can say they're natural rights or god-given rights but ultimately we had to verbalize to express them we expressed them in written form and then we secured power to protect those things and we set up a military and borders and there's a, there's a power dynamic there most people don't understand and without that we don't get that it kind of, I've, I've touched on this with coronavirus. If this causes us to lose our hegemony in the world, or if this causes us to lose stability here, which the virus actually does have the potential to do that, you don't have any of these things. These are all sophistries at that point. You, you are under warlord society. So it's very important that we respect these documents and understand power dynamics and understand why it was so important to hold these things sacred. I think that what you're saying is, a really big thing that people miss when the, in the Bolshevik Revolution, why was there such an insistence on atheism? And not just a casual thing, right? I mean, they put priests in barrels and put nails in them and rolled them down hills. They crucified nuns. I mean, they, they did all kinds of outrageous things to make faith of any type outrageous, right? Why is that? Well, because when the religion is the party, you have to eliminate any competing authority. And so 
religion provides a competing authority, whether it be Judaism or Islam or, you know, whatever. I mean, the, the, you provide a competing authority. You say, here is a set of truths that supersedes what the state claims is true today. And ultimately, you know, we've always been at war with East Asia, right? Ultimately, when the state has the authority to define truth absolutely, and there is no check, even a philosophical check, then it's, it's absurd. When you can't contradict the state, you, you run to, to insanity. And so I think that the reason that you see the Soviet Union and the North Korea and China, that they emphasize that is because when you eliminate any competing authority, all that's left is the party. Yeah, now one thing I want to say is what we're dealing with is just gross neoliberalism. I mean, the, the entire system is, is some of the worst neoliberalism you can imagine. I mean, Trent touched on this in, in, in the last podcast. We're probably the most left state in the world. Um, one of the reasons this system, one of the things that you can really hate, and, and the government still lets you, and, and all the governments of the world still lets you, is Islam. Everyone, everyone can hate that, and you can say whatever you want pretty much about Islam, and it's totally accepted. Why is that? Why can you be xenophobic and ethnocentric towards one group of people? Well, it's diametrically opposed to neoliberalism. Religion is the state in Islam. The state is the religion. And it's completely conservative. Most people think, oh, it's extremely liberal. It's an extremely liberal. No, it's, it's a completely conservative religion. It's very nationalistic. It's very insular. They don't want your product. They don't want you there with a pizza hut outside of the, you know, the Great Pyramids of Giza or any of those things that we do over there. They don't want any of that. They feel it defiles their culture, right? And so you see the system diametrically opposed to anything conservative. And, and, and this is one of the last vestiges it's going after within our society. But, it, but this system, this globalist neoliberal system, it goes after conservative culture all over the world. And as much as you might disagree with Sharia, and I do definitely, and I have many problems with Islam, I do recognize it for what it is, which is an extremely culture, uh, extremely conservative culture. It does protect and value the family. You see horror stories all the time about things that happen over there. But for the most part, people don't actually suffer widespread abuses within that culture. Okay, it just it doesn't it doesn't really occur. And there's severe punishment if you are abusive. I know I'm going to draw a lot of flack for that, but that 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 is the truth. And and neoliberalism and globalism hates that as much as it hates you and your religious structure. So. Well, so many, people, that, so many people fail to realize that the Bible is just the same. I mean, you take a look at the Torah and you take a look at the repercussions and consequences for not going into quarantine. You see the repercussions and consequences for adultery and people don't want to acknowledge yeah. that and they, and they believe They're that there's some, sort of, there's some sort of divide. The only thing that separates for me, the only thing that separates the quote unquote Old Testament and the New Testament is the blank page that comes before Matthew. Right. And, and it's a long story. It's a long narrative. And, and for me, from my, from my philosophy, from my theology, there's no divide. There is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. We're talking about the same God who has manifested himself in, in the human incarnation of Yeshua or Jesus and is living out what the example was in the Torah. And people have failed to realize that, that we hold these same very conservative, very violent worldviews in the Bible. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is all about God, love, and acceptance, and grace. Well, there's something to be said about the fact that he came to do what his father told him to do, 
And we start to look at examples in Joshua. We start to look at examples in the Judges and Isaiah. There were consequences for breaking the law, for breaking the conservative worldview that is within the Bible, within the Torah. Yeah, I think that the novelty, you know, of the New Testament in that sense is not, I think you're right that there's not a, not a radical discontinuity. I think that what changes is that Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. So that rather than enforcing these things through the state, you know, in the case of ancient Israel, um, the, you have those same principles carried through, but the enforcement not through the, not through the government. So you don't see a, a, a death a, sentence. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, we are saved by his blood and, and not the death sentence because we, we deserve death for all of our sin. We deserve the transgression, the punishment of transgression of the law. But through his grace, we have been afforded the, the absolute um, freedom from that. Yeah, and so that, that's really what I want to say is that the, 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 for a Christian looking at the whole Bible together, the answer is that, yes, adultery deserves death, you know, that the, the, these different things really, you know, the wages of sin is death and that the, to try to get over that and pretend that's not really true actually denies the significance of Jesus' death. It denies the significance of the atonement because you have a sacrifice for no reason. 100%. Right. M most people don't realize also that this, this notion that you can pay a fine and get out of a punishment or that you you can have a other than corporal punishment for sin or iniquity or whatever that's not necessarily biblical that comes out of the wear guild and the thing of anglo anglo-saxon society this is a this is actually a purely anglo-saxon instrument no no group of people on the planet had actually done this before even hammurabi i mean if you go back to those co codes of, of conduct it, it's blood for blood eye for an eye the the wear guild and and the the, the court anglo-saxon court the eldermen's and the thing that is where we get the the fine and punishment and people actually have a price associated with them uh funny enough people think it was like a very anti-feminist society and like women had like the highest uh you know price if you if you hurt one of them or did something that was exorbitant but but nonetheless uh this this uh, this modern society that we have is basically just a a modern expression in a, in a in a renewal of the anglo-saxon uh form of law and justice and and we took a break from that for i don't know uh 500 uh 600 years under the norman and plantagenet dynasty and then the people when they came here from england it was like immediately you you know you wanted hingist and horsa on the seal you know with thomas and jefferson and his entire vision and view of the legal system was all based on the Anglo-Saxon, uh, the, 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 uh, the court system that they had at the time. So it's not a biblical system. Most people think it is, and it's not. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that in the old Testament, there were fines for property crimes, right? You steal a sheep, you pay back free sheep, you know, but right. you write in a broader sense. And I, I think that the, you know, in the Bible, there was basically, there were no jails in the old Testament, right? One, in a nomadic early on society, it's just not feasible. There was uh, restitution for property crimes. There was corporal punishment for middle crimes and then for murder and kidnapping and rape and those, those kind of uh, extreme crimes. Um, we would, we would, uh, there was death, right? Um, we would say crimes against life, kidnapping, rape, murder, 
Um, and then of course, uh, blasphemy, you know, as the, and Sabbath breaking were the others. So you have this- An idea. accusal, a, accusal, uh, you know, a conviction and punishment occurred basically within a few hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, and now I will say, of course, in the Bible, there is the, the protection built into the speed of justice was the requirement of two or three eyewitnesses. To exactly. Testify. I was about to touch on that. Yeah. And the other thing that had a potential death penalty was uh, uh, <laughs> perjury. If you, and actually the phrase, an eye for an eye, comes from if there was somebody who was found to be a false witness and they testified um, to and perjured themselves about that, then they should bear the punishment they tried to get somebody else under. Um, under rabbinic law, the two or three witnesses were actually the ones who carried out the execution so that if they'd been lying, they were literally murdered. Um, and so that's a really interesting side note too. But for your broader point, you know, so I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not contradicting your broader point, just kind of tweaking a couple of the details. I, I think that the, the reality is that like a fish doesn't know it's wet. People don't consider their assumptions about the justice system and why the justice system should work, um, about what the purpose of justice is. And when we think about what's the purpose of our criminal code, there are some unwritten, unconceived assumptions baked in. Um, I don't know if you guys, I'm, I'm a nerd, so I've read all of uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, foundation novels, uh, Foundation and Empire and all that. And uh, you know, the, the early ones. Those are fantastic books. People should read those. They're really great. Very, very underrated. Yes. And absolutely. most people don't even know who Isaac Asimov is at this point. The terrible tragedy, you know, and if the, the early ones are written in that 50s serialized style, but it's like a detective novel with robots. And he was a fantastic philosopher in the same way that like Dune and those books really tackle religion and the fusion of state and political philosophy and stuff through science fiction. Uh, anyway, I'm outing myself as a, a pretty huge nerd. Um, <laughs> and, and I know nobody would have guessed that uh, from my. No, no, <laughs> nobody who went to school with you would ever guess it either. <laughs> no, no way. Well, the podcast no, audience Dune, can't Dune's see you. Fantastic too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you're, you're correct. Yeah. I was just going to say that the, you know, in those novels, right. Uh, you've got the three laws of robotics and they're bound by them. Uh, but then they realize there's a zeroth law and stuff. And so the idea is what the, the, re the resolution to the whole series, actually, of nine books or whatever it is. Spoiler without, Yeah, spoiler I'm not going to resolve the whole thing. It is an unrealized assumption uh, that the protagonist is making that he doesn't realize he's making. And I think that's true in our justice system, right? When, you, when we make these kind of consequentialist arguments, uh, we're really assuming, and I, I, I'm going to alienate some of your audience here, um, and I apologize for that. I won't be, it'd be them next week. Don't so. worry, there's only about 10 of them. <laughs> so when I am thinking about, when people talk about, well, rehabilitation or whatever, and the death penalty is going to be a really good example. There is an argument to be made that is so foreign to our thinking that it's going to sound stupid when people hear me say it, that the purpose of the death penalty is not that it's a deterrent or that it's cheaper uh, than keeping somebody in prison for life. 
the purpose of the death penalty is that it's just that someone who's committed first degree murder dies that the morality of it is not dependent entirely on the consequences of it. And we're so baked in our culture in John Stuart Mill and utilitarianism and consequentialism and stuff that we have, we don't believe that there's an objective right and objective wrong. Um, you know, if you see it in elementary school papers and stuff like fact versus opinion, murder is wrong, has to go in the opinion column type thing. Um, and I think that there is a, there are certain punishments and I'll use first degree murder as an example where the, when the, when there's two or three eyewitnesses, you know, when there's overwhelming evidence. Um, and so in that sense, the biblical standard is higher than our modern law standard, right? Requiring two or three witnesses. Um, so the, uh, if you look in the um, oral law and stuff, the, the use of the death penalty by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Senate was actually quite rare because the standard of evidence was met so rarely. Um, but when that standard of evidence is met, then I really think that uh, first degree murder, the purpose, whether or not you can prove that it works as a deterrent or financially or whatever, I think there's a point that we say, hey, this is just what's right. And most people, when you have something like the Boston Marathon or something like that, people who are normally opposed to the death penalty suddenly have a change of heart because I think that there is a moral law inscribed imperfectly in us that tells us that there's something that goes beyond consequence. I know that was a big, like I said, alienate your audience. That was a big step. No, that's all true. There's a second reason, and that's from the perspective of the judge, right? Or of the people who are potentially judging uh, their peer. But the second reason for the death penalty, and most people don't tackle this, is from the position of the state. And it's that what you have done is socially unacceptable because it can destabilize society. It has unknown ramifications within our unit. And I am now going to exact, uh, you know, authority over you, uh, the supreme authority. I'm going to exact this and you will be killed as an example that we will not destabilize our way of life. Yes. And I want to do this as infrequently as possible because then you run the risk of becoming a tyrant, right? And then you have destabilized. Uh, the government and you will be overthrown. But ultimately, it's very important to execute citizens who have done extreme uh, wrongdoing in your society because the government needs to make that show of effort that it, it ha has your interest at heart and that it won't allow individual actors to stabilize the state. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, I, I think that people who are being kind of sloppy in their thinking don't discern the difference between what you're saying and deterrence. Um, because deterrence is thinking about like individuals and stuff. Right. And this is actually very different from deterrence. This is, this is a, a consequence. Yes. This is a consequence to maintain authority, which is, which is different than deterrence or uh, something along those lines. And I, so I think that there is definitely a really big reason to support that. Now, I will say that one of the weaknesses in our society more generally, and you know, again, dipping into controversy a little bit is we've lost respect for human life. Um, you know, in my belief, uh, human life is sacred from conception to natural death. Um, I think that I can sympathize with somebody with a terminal illness who takes drastic steps. I don't think they ought to do that. I don't think that they're damned for doing that. I think that like uh, any, any sin, somebody who's uh, trusted Christ all their sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross. And so they're all, all forgiven. Um, 
but I, I do think that in a sense of the sacredness of life, that my life can have meaning apart from pain or without regard to pain, without regard to suffering, that I don't, I don't think that that defines the value of a life. And I don't think the value of a life is defined by what I can do, you know, or by even by my relationship with other people. You know, some of those arguments that are used for abortion, uh, I don't think, I've never found anybody who's willing to actually carry through what they say makes life life to people that have already been born. Um, and so, uh, you know, according to the- Bible, what, you're, what you're talking about is the body-soul dichotomy, right? Yes, yeah. And, That's an important topic, and a lot of Christians seriously misinterpret that, and it sounds like you've got the right take on that. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of people are, are lazy. Uh, <laughs> sounds cynical of me too. You know, Gen- Genesis 9-6 says, uh, if someone sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be spilled because man was made in the image of God. So the ultimate Christian reason uh, that we shouldn't murder, that murder deserves the death penalty is that murder is blasphemy. It's burning God in effigy. Um, and when I show compassion to a fellow person or love a fellow person or mistreat them, then I'm indirectly uh, treating God in the same way. Um, and so I think the sanctity of human life is extraordinarily important. And I think that our society's inability to deal with punishment and stuff is uh, huge. And to go back to Black Lives Matter, we talked about that briefly. Um, I can say for sure Black Lives Matter. And I can even say, you know, I don't mind saying that it's helpful to say Black Lives Matter in, in contradistinction to All Lives Matter. You know, I can say, hey, there's a specific thing going on in some ways. I don't mind that so much. Now, the organization Black Lives Matter uh, keeps me from using the phrase because the organization is uh, irredeemably wicked. Um, the, 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 the point that I want to make with that, though, is that when we say Black Lives Matter or say All Lives Matter or whatever, I think that our society's definition about what it means for a life to matter is so impoverished that what we mean by that is strictly economic or strictly productivity. And when we accept that, we have already begged the question and accepted the Marxist idea of what makes a person valuable is their contribution to the whole. And I think that a lot of the arguments are destined to fail because we have accepted subconsciously the arguments that are being made by the other side. And so we're not ever able to, to get anywhere. And so when you think about, okay, all life is sacred, so black lives are not black, black lives matter is insufficient, right? Black lives are holy. Black, black lives are sacred. And yet that's not primarily measured financially. That's not primarily measured even in terms of the 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 kind of things that we can measure and do studies on. Like that goes that goes beyond that. And I think that because our society, because of the destruction of all authorities except the state, uh primarily I'll say the authority of the church, but you can stretch out the fathers, uh, you know, you can say all authorities have been carefully eroded. And I say carefully, um, not to be, you know, in a conspiracy theory or whatever, that there's some mastermind behind it all. But I think that little by little, different groups have deliberately eroded different sources of authority. So now there's only one authority. It's not even the state as such. It's the people with the credentials. It's the people who can then step up and fill that role. And because of that, we've lost the ability to carefully think, much less discuss the philosophical issues that underline the whole thing. So I know I'm getting into pretty deep water there. I'm sorry. This, this is- no, because emotions always take over 
no matter what, no matter what the argument, you, you can sit down with one person who has stats and figures and another person who has stats and figures, and it will eventually devolve into an emotional visceral reaction of, well, you just don't care. Yeah. You just don't like, you, you so, think black lives are, are insignificant, right? Or, or you, you don't want to wear masks, so you kill people. What, what you're talking about is uh, really important. I, I talk to people all the, about this all the time. A reason society is sick is because we, uh, I, I use tribe because it's like something that's thrown around a lot recently, but you, you, your tribe is not taken care of and then your community falls apart. But if you want to get into it, it's really, it, it goes back to Greek uh, philosophy. It's, it's the oikos versus the polis, right? And, and I'm not going to go get into what the oikos is really, but you can look at it as a larger family unit. Um, and the oikos generally had their shrine, right? They had their religious guidance. Each oikos probably had a different shrine or a different uh, god or goddess that they, they worshipped. Um, and now we have, you know, well, my family's Methodist, I'm Baptist, you know, you're Episcopalian or you're, you know, whatever, what have you. Uh, but ultimately you, you do have in your Oikos, a governance, a spiritual governance. Now, some people don't, they're devoid uh, of any sort of spiritual guidance at this point, but within our lifetime, especially in communities that we grew up in, right. It was like, everybody went to church and you know what church everybody went to. And so the, the, your oikos had a, a a governance it had a spiritual uh guide and then so that the, the polis was a direct extension from the oikoses you know uh oikai i don't know how you would say it i haven't taken greek and it's been a long time so but uh you you have multiple oikos and that makes up the polis right which is the city state and ultimately that is if you look at the states in the united states we really are city states it's it's i know it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around that but that's really what they are they're a polis and we have this degradation this cultural illness and a uh, degeneracy that i don't know that the world's ever seen before actually a lot of people think the romans were like the absolute worst i i don't know i i, I think that we've done some things that are probably far worse than they've ever done um, and it all stems from the fact there is no, there is no spiritual guidance over the family. It, it does have a trickle down effect. And this attack on, uh, it, this is a, this is a post attack, right? This, this happened in the sixties under the LBJ administration, but it, it is going to come to a head. I would say probably within the next five years, it's, it, it and it could be the flashpoint that really sets off a, an actual conflict in, in this country. You know, I think you're exactly right. I think people broadly underestimate LBJ. You know, um, the he he was a a real genius. I mean, an, an evil genius, <laughs> but a, a a real genius. And you know, I think that although you know he didn't run for a second term because of all the weird. I mean, he was also an inherently unstable man. I mean, uh, the the. the convinced he was going to die and all that stuff so make make no mistake he would have won a second term people think he would not have and he absolutely would have won on a landslide whether he did it legitimately or illegitimately that that man was going to win yeah and so he you know expressed concerns about really his legacy in the vietnam war and all that stuff and he was sure he was going to die during his second term which i mean it turns out he did he, he did die in that period um so i guess maybe you're not paranoid if it's true but i think he was a deeply paranoid man really temperament-wise, very similar to Richard Nixon, right? Uh, you had somebody who was willing to get what he wanted at all costs, who was deeply unstable. Uh, I don't know much about LBJ's background. I know in Richard Nixon's case, to go back to that other episode you did, 
uh, it was about his relationship with the, his abusive father that left him constantly feeling the need to prove himself and everything. Um, I don't remember. I think that it was Chuck Colson that wrote about being on Air Force One and coming up behind Nixon and Nixon didn't realize it. And he was talking to himself and saying like, you be <laughs> like this unstable people. Um, I would like to say in Nixon's defense, he ended up right about everything. He ended up right about everything. So if Nixon had not, if Nixon would have won reelection without Watergate and stuff. It was his own insecurity was the cause of his destruction. Um, and so, you know, Nixon's not remembered for the successful things he did because he was a man who was very smart and totally devoid of character, right? He, he destroyed himself. Um, and so, yes, I don't want to draw the connection between LBJ and Nixon too close, but I think in terms of the kind of person they were and the way that played out within their different political philosophies, there's a lot of uh, similarity. But anyway, the uh, Oikonomia, the, which is the household society, like the, the, the connection between the people, um, the, you're on uh, mute, Quentin. Sorry, are you talking? Okay, good. It wasn't important. Just listen to me, folks. Um, I'm going to start a podcast. <laughs> you really should. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Um, we thought the same thing, but look at that. We've grown an audience. <laughs> Until the things I've said today uh, cost you your audience. Don't, like I said, don't hold it personally. Um, the, the, the issue is, you know, the Bible says if the foundations be destroyed, how can the righteous stand, right? When you destroy society on that basic economy of level, and then the it can't build beyond there you know when you destroy marriages then you can't have strong families when you can't have strong families you can't have strong communities when you can't have strong communities you're going to have a weak society and that to me is horrifying if i were an authoritarian dictator uh (laughs) the elimination of all competition would not be horrifying at all it would be it would be my plan and in the U.S., if our dictators take the form of less, less explicit power, um, but still exert power, you know, I mean, if you look at the extreme left and the extreme right, and they build their tribes, and they build these echo chambers and stuff, and in terms of influencing people's thoughts and influencing people's commercial decisions and everything, you know, you saw the maps and stuff that you can tell which way a district went in 2016 by Cracker Barrel versus Whole Foods and stuff like that. Um, it creates this, and it was it was crazy. It was like 90% or better uh, accuracy. Um, and it creates some really extreme stuff. You know, uh, the whole, it's the economy stupid. It's true. <laughs> it, it's, and it's just, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. I guess I need another cup of coffee. No, no problem. As, as we start to wrap it up, um, we, we always leave a question towards the end of, of the podcast. Well, I, would, if, I would like to get him to do one more thing before we wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a uh, share. You made a great post. I thought it was fantastic because it's true. And most people don't realize what masks being 20% effective actually means exponentially or yeah. logarithmically. And uh, because most people don't have a really good foundation in math. Uh, you and I both study mathematics, so I, I thought your explanation was great, and you laid it out a way most people could understand it. So I would like you to discuss that for a moment, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
uh, sorry, I'm getting my Excel spreadsheet up so I can tell you correctly. Um, all of, so exponential growth is so different from our ordinary experience that our intuition about exponential growth is terrible. You know, people just don't process what exponential growth means. Um, and so when I say, okay, I'm going to wear a mask, um, and that's an area where maybe I get people have a hard time putting me in a category because I think everybody ought to wear a mask. I think that it is unconstitutional for there to be an executive order demanding people wear masks. You know, so I, I, I draw distinctions between what the right thing to do and the way the government ought to exert its power is. And so when I think about what does it mean to wear a mask, the studies say there was a really good study in Lancet that measured surgical masks and cloth, cloth masks and stuff in real life scenarios, not laboratory. In laboratory, masks are like 80% effective. In real life, people touch their masks, they pull them down, they lift them up, they get overly bold because they're wearing a mask. Like most people who die falling off a ladder have someone holding the bottom of the ladder because the presence of that person makes them more reckless. He could make some pretty cool analogies about society from that too, I think. But the in with a mask, the they measure that it's they think it's about 24% effective on average uh, in reducing transmission. And that doesn't sound very good. Uh, but so you start running the numbers, and if you had if you assume that every uh, 10 days, right? I'm sorry, every week, the number of cases would double naturally, which is too long. You know, we saw in New York was every three or four days, so twice a week is is better. Um, but just, just suppose for a second it doubles every week. And you start out with 10 people in week zero who have uh, COVID-19. Well, you'd have 20 the next week, 40, 80, 163, 20, uh, 640, 1280, you know, and so on. So by the 10th week, you'd have 5,120 cases. Now, let's say everybody's wearing a mask instead. And so you have a uniform 20% dampening effect. In the first week, I'm sorry, you'd have 10,000 in the 10th week. In the first week, instead of having 20 cases, you'd have 18, you say big whoop. You know, in the third week, instead of having 40 cases, you've had, you'd have 32. But finally, by the time you got 10 weeks in, you'd have 3,570 cases instead of 10,000. So you're having like a 70% reduction. If we use a real number instead and say twice a week it doubles, then in 10 weeks with no dampening effect, which is not realistic, right? People do some stuff, but with no dampening effect, you'd have 10 and a half million cases without masks and 1.3 million with masks. That's an 88% reduction total caused by a 20% effective mask. Um, with doubling rates, even if masks are only 2% effective, you can have an 18% reduction in total cases after 20 generations because of that small difference. That's the reason that you should invest in retirement when you're young, because your earnings make you earn it, right? The power of exponential growth is pretty crazy, where small decisions, whether positive or negative, can have a big effect. And I think that actually applies to a lot of the stuff we've talked about. And I think a lot of people have take issue with it, with some of that. I think, again, you start to get into having a logical conversation, and then you get into people's emotional reactions. When you start to see the CDC flip-flop almost daily 
on where they stand on certain things. Is it asymptomatic spread or not? Is it uh, an effective tool using a mask or not? Is it symbolic or not? You, you get these contradictory statements coming out of one or two quote unquote experts. And then you have people throw their hands up in the air and say, well, none of it makes sense. Right. And then the CDC quietly updates their website to say that all, all, but pretty much all of uh, the cases that are happening right now are, you know, if you're testing positive, you are potentially testing positive for the antibodies of COVID-19, or you are testing positive for antibodies for all coronaviruses, which may include, but not limited to the common cold. So when you have the CDC give you those sort of statistics, and then you and I can have that statistical conversation of, okay, yes, we can have an 80% reduction, but none of it makes sense if it's not even the COVID-19 that we're trying to stop. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Thankfully, the uh, Texas and most states, I think, are now breaking out antibody tests and the nasal tests, and the antibody tests are junk. I'm slightly conspiratorial enough to believe that the um, antibody, that the purpose of the antibody tests being conflated was to overestimate the number of tests they were doing. That that that's exactly right, and it's to lower the death rate. It's it's to lower the case fatality rate. So if if you can double the amount of positives that you have, the case fatality gets cut in half. And that's exactly what they did. It, you know, and I, the problem when we talk about the degrading of institutions is there's no trust in those institutions. Yeah, and for, we've talked about the death of trust a lot on, on, the, on the show. And, for, you know, the problem is that it's not so simple, right? There are good reasons not to trust some of these government agencies. Um, but when you don't have anybody you can trust, you descend into chaos. And when people, what I would normally consider a liberal point of view, saying, well, some people interpret it this way and some people interpret it this way, so I'm just going to do whatever I want, is now, you know, pretty common across the board. And it creates this post-fact society. Well, you know, some experts say the earth is flat. Some say it's spherical. You get this false equivalency stuff. And then what's the next step out from there? Well, it's if truth is unknowable and if truth is unknown then i can just do whatever i want and it it's not sustainable i mean it's 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 catastrophic for society as a whole not at but all that's I, how you develop into cults of mystery i mean yeah. like what you're it's just it it, it it that that is where you get that yeah well it's uh, ironic that you even... can also turn science into that as well but but we're we're going into the opposite of that actually right now where there's the death of trust in science and now we're going to have new mystery cults just spring up. And I was just going to add that it's ironic that that was the last question that Pontius Pilate asks Yeshua, that he asked Jesus, what is truth and his response. And I think if we can ultimately come to the decision that, you know, you can wear a mask and it's the best thing to do while at the same time taking that liberty and saying, you know what, I don't want to wear a mask. So making the right decision for me is not to go out unless I absolutely have to. And if I'm going to go out, then I have the choice to wear the mask or not. And I think then you start to get into the conversation of whether or not a facility, a, a commercial institution like Walmart, Brookshire Brothers, whatever it might be, then also has the right to tell me I can't shop at their location because I'm not adhering to their no shoes, no shirts, no service. Now it's no mask. So, I mean, the, these conversations really start to break down and, and we're, we're fighting over a mask or, or not to wear a mask. And, and I have a differing opinion from, from all three, or, or, or all three, <laughs> from both of you. 
And that's and that's it. I, I think masks should absolutely be mandated. I think people should be forced to comply under penalty of law. And if they don't, then we're really backing into a corner where this actually does, the government does recognize it. They have people locked in bunkers right now because they recognize how serious the situation could be. This could be a, uh, a crisis of legitimacy. It could be a crisis of government. It really can cause the dissolution of the state. If that occurs, your rights mean nothing. Like I said earlier, uh, they mean nothing uh, because no matter how they are uh, articulated or codified, they won't be enforced. They're not enforceable or they're not recognized by whatever entity fills that power vacuum. And you are going to be under the rule of some sort of new state. It will be totalitarian in some way or authoritative just because what we see come out of the BLM movement and various other things like Antifa, or you'll just end up like Mexico and you'll be under warlord society run by criminal gangs. And, and, and that sounds very extreme. People are like, that's super stupid. No, it's really not. It really isn't stupid. It really is a possibility. The, the, the virus has actually mutated to become worse now, unfortunately. And this is a real possibility that we're running up against. And other countries are not behaving like this because they recognize any threat to the legitimacy of the state will undermine all the values of the state eventually. And although I used to be a very libertarian guy and I would immediately like knee jerk to agree with both of you on your opinions, I just understand what's at stake with this thing. Well, I, I know y'all do too. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to yeah, I, I, your, I 100% agree with that. Like, but at the same cause, time, because I do know that y'all understand that as well. You're dealing with Americans. I think bottom line is you're dealing with Americans. If, if we can agree that the American spirit is born out of rebellion, then you know that having any sort of yeah, authoritarian, I mean, totalitarian kind of, lockdown, it, it can be very detrimental to, to how we get along. Justin? I, I will say that the, the idea of American rebellion ebbs and flows, given how much pressure is put on Americans by the state. It, it just depends. I, have, I, I do instinctively agree with you, but I do think that Americans in the past have been I think that we confuse a lot of the rebellious nature with a frontier spirit, which they they appear uh, prima facie, you know, to be very similar to, to be the same, wherein they're kind of different. And one of the reasons I say that is because America at its founding wasn't a rebellious, like it was a, it was not a rebellion initially. It was a, an assertion of rights as Englishmen, right? That's all they wanted. They were Englishmen. Almost entirely, the country was English with some Scottish thrown in and some Pennsylvania Dutch, and they had a frontier or pioneering spirit about them. Um, a lot of people think that the Puritans were like cast out or pushed out of England. That's not actually true if you look into it. There's you have the 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 revolution that took place and the Cromwell yeah, and his roundheads, the Cavaliers, and it was yeah they weren't really pushed out. That's that's kind of a fallacy. Um, and uh, you know, there's this frontier spirit where they wanted to be, uh, they wanted to reassert themselves basically as roundheads and Puritans uh, here and have this, in the Northeast, have this roundhead society basically. In the South, it was very much uh, Anglo Normans and they were very much Cavaliers and uh, they wanted to almost reinstitute the Stuart dynasty. It sounds kind of crazy, but if you look in history, that's what it was. There was not really a rebellion against King George other than the fact that he was Hanoverian and people didn't really like that, to be honest with you. A lot of people were, even the people in the Northeast were Stuart loyalists, to, to be quite honest with you. Um, and there was this, there was this clash 
um, against the Hanovers and what happened with the when William Orange of Nassau took over after uh, Cromwell was or uh, I can't remember if it was Cromwell or Charles doesn't matter but one of them was deposed it's been a long time since I studied this and this new non-English line took over I actually don't think that Americans were very prone to rebellion at all after that point. And you saw it with the Whiskey Rebellion when once, you know, basically the new King George came and said, hey, I'll kill all of you if you don't comply. People were like, okay. Um, and, and you saw those, those kind of episodes, the nullification crisis with Andrew Jackson. You saw it where he was like, I'm going to come and hang whoever, uh, you know, causes this problem. Uh, and then they just stopped. Um, I don't think, I think we, everyone wants to express themselves individually and we do have this, let's, let's break barriers and this pioneering spirit. But I actually think this whole spirit of 1776 thing, I never saw that in my life until maybe there was a little spark of it during the Clinton administration after Waco and or after Ruby Ridge and Waco, not a whole lot, but Obama, boom, spirit of 1776, everything's totalitarian, rebel against the state, the state's always bad. And I don't think that we'd ever really seen that before. And and certainly as the country has become less ethnically homogenous, I think you do see that more and more. But back when this was basically just an Anglo state, an extension, I mean, it really, this country really was an extension of Britain at one time, uh, ethnically at least. Um, you you didn't see it as much. I, I think that we're we're maybe confusing a couple of things, but I will say that there is a legitimate rebellion occurring right now. Uh, and, and some of it is totally justified. I, I want to say two things. Um, one, I think historically you're right. I don't think that people were in the U.S. self-consciously rebellious. You know, I think that that's an origin myth that was invented later. I think you could probably trace the beginnings of it to Teddy Roosevelt and how he used that origin myth to kind of define himself as the embodiment of America. Uh, I think it's really similar to the way that in Reconstruction the origin myth of the Confederacy was redefined to, to be something different, the Lost Cause stuff, where they created the myth of who they wanted to be. Um, whether or not it's true, historically, there are large swaths of America that think that being rebellious is part of what it means to be American. And so the net effect today, you know, may be the same. Um, I, with your uh, comments about the mask regulations, I guess I'm actually maybe a, a third position. So I think executive orders are unconstitutional. I think it's an executive overreach. I think the legislature ought to make a law that says you have to wear masks under these circumstances or whatever. And I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that because the precedent that sets is a very slippery slope. And I completely agree with that. I, I, I do think masks should be uh, compulsory. I do not think it should be handled the way it has been. And I think that when you look at the way war and stuff's been handled, I think that over time, Congress has very systematically, uh, I guess, really given up their authority um, to the executive branch. And I don't think that was an accident. I think that Congress in a state of perpetual gridlock is intentional so that they don't have to be accountable, <laughs> so they can continue. You know, it's just like every time there's a Republican administration, they say, well, we're going to get rid, uh, we're going to stop funding Planned Parenthood or whatever. And it never happens because you can't run on it once it happens, right? The same way Democrats run, you know, I, I know it's new for Biden, uh, but on getting rid of the Hyde Amendment uh, to do abortion on the opposite side. They never actually do it because you can't run on it once you do it. And so they go ahead and delegate their authority to, in the case of the right, usually the executive branch, and in the case of the left, usually the courts. 
um, and allow those branches to swell far beyond any reason. Um, and so instead of having written laws like you're talking about and the stability that law, like the constitution rather than the UK system with the, the stability of written laws, we lose. And instead we're on the whims of the executive. You see it with DACA, you know, I mean, if that had been a law, things would be very different. But when it's something where one president institutes it, another one removes it, just it creates instability that is not conducive to a healthy society in my opinion. So one of the reasons I'm totally against term limits because they won't even have to placate to you if you remove term limits. They won't even have to lie to you and 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 give you this this the base of this red meat to to bite on. They'll just be bought and sold before you ever vote for them. They'll be in office, never once acknowledge you, do anything and everything for the corporate masters that bought them, and then forget about you as soon as they're gone. And it, it, you'll never have mattered once no in that entire system. We had term Because limits. money is free speech and your voice doesn't matter. Whoever writes the checks got the biggest vote. They have the biggest voice. We had term limits under the Articles of Confederation and we got rid of them on purpose in the Constitution. Um, to me, the other thing with term limits is that some of the stuff that like the Intelligence Committee and stuff deals with is very, very complicated. And congressmen are already so dependent on their staff that if you every eight years are replacing everybody, you'll have more and more power consolidated in the unelected bureaucracy because they just will not be able to handle it. Um, I get the impetus behind term limits. I think the fact that in the you know early 20th century, Congress quit increasing its size because they realized it diluted the power of each individual congressman. I think drastically increasing the size of Congress would actually solve a lot of problems, including this kind of permanent uh, accretion of power. I think it would solve some problems where you could keep the electoral college, but remove some of the imbalance that goes far beyond what the founders ever intended. You know, anyway, I'm getting off. No, said. it's true. If your elected representative either lived in your city or in a small area of your county, you, you would have a lot more accountability. Because I mean, I hate to be kind of cryptic, but you know where that dude lives. I mean, and, and they know that too. You yeah. know, so it, there, there's, there's a lot more accountability there. Right now, each representative represents about three quarters of a million people. You can't represent three quarters of a million people. You, you have to represent the biggest lobby groups within that, not even within that, right? Because there's no accountability. So you're responsible to the largest lobbyists in the country that fund your campaign, and your actual constituents are almost a footnote. If you doubled or tripled the size of the house, there'd be some logistical problems. But if you were representing 200,000 people instead of 700,000, there would be a whole lot more accountability and you would balance the electoral college. You know, that was actually the original First Amendment was to tie the size of Congress to the population. And it was missed on a technicality. In fact, I'm getting off in the weeds, but in fact, there is some evidence that that First Amendment actually passed and the Secretary of State of one of the states didn't file it correctly, and it was discovered later. And you couldn't do it today. It was like one representative for every 15,000 people. You'd have to do like a cubic like balance to it. But anyway, Congress is way too small, and I think that the opposition to increasing the size of Congress is based on not dealing honestly with some of the arguments. And, and they, they, they don't want you to know this. There's, there's, only, there's only the argument for a constitutional convention and a delegation of states and all this, this crazy 
this crazy things and, and, you know, with, with term limits, but the, the opposite argument or the, the, the uh, competing arguments is if we have a convention of states and it goes wrong, kiss the constitution goodbye. It probably will go wrong. It's, I think it's very awful that, that certain Republicans and conservatives are proposing this because I, they know, they know it could go wrong. And, and, and you'll just end up with a, a corporate state. It's just completely run by lobbyists. And, uh, and secondly, you know, people don't realize that they're underrepresented. And, and it's by design, I think, at this point. Congress doesn't want to get bigger because then they actually have to listen to you. And so they keep you in this false argument and you think you're winning or you think you can have your way eventually. But really, if you would just increase their size and scope, it would probably fix all of your problems. You'd feel a lot better about it. And, and lobbyists would have far less influence over Congress. They'd have to buy whole blocks of Congress. You know, that would get very expensive. And I don't even think it'd be doable, to be honest. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, there's a paper that I read that was uh, describing the fall of empires. And goodness, I can't remember who wrote it. But they studied the fall of the Roman Empire. They studied the fall of different nations. And their primary thought was, why have some of the countries post-World War II in Europe grown so much faster than others? Um, and what this author determined, and he proved it even with states that were part of the Confederacy and weren't, is that over time, you have more and more special interest groups. And a special interest group, if you've got 50 people, it's easy for them to lobby hard to get them $100 each. And it's hard to lobby against them because it may cost everybody else 10 cents, right? The, the motivation for them to lobby for their point of view is much, much stronger than the motivation to stop, right? And so you add that up over time and you have all these special interest groups that instead of trying to make the pie bigger are each trying to get a bigger piece of the pie at the expense of others. And it, you have this gradual, like, uh, uh, barnacles on a ship type effect that builds more and more drag. And what he demonstrated was that after the Civil War, the reason the Southern states were able to grow their economies so quickly was you got a clean slate. World War II, the countries that were occupied and got a clean slate and all those old special interest groups, the whole social contract was rewritten, were able to do really well. Um, and so now I think we're to that point where there's so many leeches that are each trying to pull their own direction. Um, but I personally am not comfortable playing the Russian roulette game of hoping that what comes next will be better because I don't think that it will. I think that we're just, you know, in that situation. You want a vision of the future, it's the reign of terror. That's, that's ultimately the vision of the future. If we can leave if, our... if, if we dissolve this, that's what we're going to get, the reign of terror. If we can leave the audience with with an uplifting thought, Justin, <laughs> <laughs> you, the, the whole basis of the new normal for us is to, you know, understand that there are some things that we have to live with as the quote unquote new normal. But the new normal does have a positive implication, whether we're talking about preparedness, your financial preparedness, your physical preparedness, your mental preparedness, those all have positive outcomes when it comes to a new normal. So the question that we like to leave with at the end of uh, each episode is if you had access to a billboard, if you had a billboard that you could leave a message for the listeners to navigate the new normal, where it talks, where, whether we're talking about COVID, whether we're talking about riots and looting in the cities, what are some things from your point of view, from either a theological point of view or just your, your humanist point of view, 
where, what would be the message that you would leave on a billboard for people to reflect on? So if I had to do it like billboard slogan, it would be Jesus is King. Um, and so my, to give an expanded version of that, my point of view would just be that all of these problems that we're talking about that are important to us because they're staring us in the face and this is our country and this is our life and we're losing things that are important to us, that all those things in the big grand scope are actually pretty minor. And that if the things that cause us so much grief now, if we could look back on them at the end of our lives or even into eternity, we would often think that the things that seemed so important were not. Mm. And so a, a lot of the things that we've lost in this transition to the new normal that some people are groping desperately to get back in some form, maybe the better solution would be to realize that you never needed it in the first place, that you still through God, through your family, through your community, have all the resources that you need to deal with the new normal. That's a great word. And, and I think if we can sum that up is that monarchy is truly the answer. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to have one that's, you just have to have a benevolent despot. And it'll exactly. be all right. Awesome. Somebody, if you can find somebody who's willing to die for you uh, to be your king, that's a pretty good one. That's awesome. Justin, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on The New Normal. We want to you know, edify you and thank you for, for your time. You've yeah, given, thanks, man. You've given your time very graciously. Um, if you are listening to us on iTunes, we would love it if you would give us a review. If you're listening to us on the website, leave us a comment. Wherever you are listening to us, you can find us at newnormalpod.com. Again, Justin, thank you so much for your time you are more than welcome to come back on. I think we covered so many topics that we can really just spend another hour or two on a specific topic. And we'd love to have you come back on the show. So thank you so much for joining us on The New Normal. As always, stay safe and welcome to The New Normal. <laughs>